Well, we have completed our first series, the foundations of the faith, as I called it, where we started in Genesis 1, um, looking at how God has designed His eternal kingdom throughout the ages, through what are known as covenants, unique relationships, where God enters into, by His grace, certain people throughout the ages. And He's always had these covenant mediators, as I mentioned, over the past ten or so sermons. Um, in particular, starting with Adam, we see that God entered into a covenant type of relationship with Adam. And then later, with Abraham, and then Moses, and then David, and ultimately, and finally, in Jesus Christ. And through each of these covenant relationships, we see that there's an order, that it is God who comes, as the Old Testament term says, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, or the word of the Lord came to Moses, and said such and such, made certain promises. And it was them believing in the word of the Lord, which proved itself through actions that gives us a picture of what a true relationship with God looks like. God entered by grace because no one deserves His mercy or His love. But these people and those who were in covenant with God, with them, were also those who believed God's Word. And so there's a sense in which we can say that God is generally the Father of all creation. That He's the head of all creation. But there's a unique sense in which He has a family or familial relationship with those who trust in His promises, in His Word. And Christ tells us in John 3, where He speaks to Nicodemus, that those who wish to enter the kingdom and to even see it, starting in this life, must be born again. And so, as we were reminded through the, the week of Easter, it is through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the only eternal Son of God, that anyone now can have a relationship. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. In His perfect sinless life, in His death, which we will celebrate later, and in His resurrection, He has accomplished salvation. And this is the new covenant, but it's actually also an eternal covenant. The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you, may He equip you with everything good for doing His will, and may He work in us what is pleasing to Him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And you see right there, He uses the words, through the blood of the eternal covenant. And we'll look at this shortly. So before Jesus ascended, after His resurrection, before He went to sit back down at the right hand of the Father on high in victory, He gave what is known as this great commission to His followers. It is the singular mission of the church throughout the ages. 
so that we don't have to be confused about what our purpose is based on our identity in Christ. And he said, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and I am with you to the end of the age. Later, after the ascension, in the same way that Jesus was sent by the Father, the Father and the Son sent the third person of the Trinity, the one true God, the Holy Spirit, to indwell the people of this new covenant. All who become members of the church universal, who become believers, are those who are indwelt by God Himself. This is the in a sense, the ultimate fulfillment of Emmanuel, God with us. Christ fulfilled that, but now God is in us by the Holy Spirit. And we see the obedience of his followers to this great commission. Peter, who denied him, becomes bold and begins preaching the gospel and churches are being built. We see this throughout the book of Acts. And eventually there's a man named Saul of Tarsus. Jesus Christ, the risen Christ himself, as Saul of Tarsus is on the road to Damascus to destroy, to persecute the church, to stop the work of the gospel, Jesus appears to him, confronts him, converts him, and sends him on the same mission with a particular focus on non-Jews, which was a rather humbling task because Paul was a very prideful Jew. He was very proud of his heritage. And he was trained in the knowledge of Jewish history and the scriptures. Paul was made an apostle of Jesus Christ. And it was during his ministry that a young man named Titus believed the same gospel and was saved by God and His same powerful grace. And he became one of Paul's closest companions in ministry. And Titus was being equipped for ministry. And eventually, Paul and Titus on the little island named Crete were seeing people come to faith in Jesus. And so that is the definition of a church being established. So Paul continues on his evangelistic missionary type mission. And he leaves Titus on this island named Crete to pastor, to shepherd, to oversee those who were believers and to help raise up other men to do the same thing. And so we're going to begin walking through this small New Testament book named Titus today. And again, if you just walked in, you can find Titus on page 844 of the Pew Bibles. I'm just going to read the first four verses, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in hope, in the hope of eternal life which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time and which now at His appointed season He has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, 
grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray once more. Father, we ask you again to use your word to do what you intend to do with it. To glorify your name by accomplishing continual work in the souls of your people and bringing others into this saving faith, this eternal covenant. Build us up now in this way, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, this is a a study we're going to take moving through the book of Titus. Not as fast as we've moved through the Old Testament, by any means. And the general overarching theme of these sermons is going to be simply lessons from Titus for God's church. And in a sense, that is how we are to understand the whole Bible. That God throughout the ages has been speaking to His people. And so everything in the Word is for us. For our good. And the first lesson that I want us to see, or at least one of the few first lessons I want us to see, is that there's a unique connection between grace and works that sometimes gets confused. So I want us to look at this connection between works and grace. And so I've entitled this sermon, Grace-Based Godliness. I have three simple points. The first one is this. We see the new identity is in Christ. The new identity of God's covenant people is those who are in Christ. Secondly, new purpose is Christ's likeness and the furtherance of that. And lastly, eternal hope is with Christ. So this first point, new identity in Christ. Again, when we look at Paul himself, the first word in this letter, Paul as he introduces himself, we have to just pause and reflect on his conversion as we, as we did in the introduction. So we see that the very identity of Paul itself, his own identity as an apostle of Jesus Christ, instructs us about how God has been working through Christ. Paul reminds Titus who God created them to be of their identity and what he intends for them to do in life. And this is a big issue today. These three ideas of identity and purpose and hope. This is really a foundational issue. Who are we? Who am I? We are living in a world which has been dealing with what I like to call an identity crisis for thousands of years now. Ever since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden gave in to the lies of Satan, we became a people who are naturally dissatisfied with who we were born to be, with who God intends for us to be. We became dissatisfied with His sovereign rule and order over who He made us to be. We see this in many ways today. People are trying to change their gender, and the list goes on. There's a confusion where people are calling such things good and knowledge. 
that we know is not so. They, as in Adam and Eve, they were expecting to become more than God made them to be. More like God than they were already made to be. Not living within their God-given identities. And the way you see yourself and understand your identity can only be rightly understood considering God's identity as sovereign creator and sustainer of all and then submitting ourselves to his word. And Paul, again, learned this in a powerful way. Saul, when he was converted by the risen Christ, came to understand that as much religious or or religiosity was in his life, he didn't know God truly. Even as a Jew amongst the Jews, Paul did not yet know the living God. So Paul's new identity in Christ shapes who he is. We see these words in verse 1. A servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul is using Old Testament language to to define himself. Very often in his other writings he'll just say an apostle of Jesus Christ. But he puts there first a servant of God. Just like Moses was a servant of God and David was a servant of God. Paul is using a a type of Old Testament um, terminology there to define himself. And then when he says an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's using that word apostle to define his new identity in a very unique way. The The word apostle can mean sent out one, but when it's used in the New Testament... By people like Paul. What it means is someone who has been handpicked by the person of Christ in person, those who Jesus himself selected. And 11 of them who were living at this time were selected by Christ's very own hand, if you will. But Paul calls himself one untimely born because it was the, the literal risen Christ who chose Paul. Not just a a dream or an idea, but Christ appeared to him and chose him. So he has become a servant of God, truly now. And he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, sent out on this mission to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And Titus, and all Christians in our conversion, we've been saved by the same gospel. In a sense, there is a unique authority that rested within the apostles at this time. But it wasn't their, their very own selves. It wasn't the men themselves that had the authority. It was the order in which Christ chose them to fulfill their ministry, which we have complete in our hands now, in the Word of God. This is why... That mantra throughout the ages that we say, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, actually has substance. Because the very authority of Christ, which is the authority of God, which flowed through the hands of those men and into these writings, and through the the proclamations they were making, rests now in our very laps. This is a very important truth for us as Christians to get. Because Paul at the outset is establishing what the authority 
of his identity and purpose and our identity and purpose and mission is. So a Christian is someone who has been born again, is united to Christ by faith or in Christ by faith and has become united to all other Christians by that same faith. We're all one in Christ Jesus, as Paul says in Galatians. And notice what he says in in a couple of verses below. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith. Again, that is, that is a, a unifying statement. He's saying that there's one true faith and there's no levels in this faith. It is a common faith that we share in Christ Jesus. And Paul begins to now move on to his purpose by saying that his being converted and his mission is to further the faith of God's elect. And through the very ministry of Titus, that is what Paul is doing. He's furthering this faith through his preaching and teaching in Titus' life and then through him passing that baton on to Titus to stay in Crete and raise up other men who will do the same thing and help to keep the sheep on the right path, the, the church healthy with true teaching concerning God. And so we see that our new identity in Christ defines our focus, defines our purpose, which brings us to the second point. Christ likeness. Our new purpose is Christ likeness. That might sound like an, a vague or oversimplified way to put it, but what did Christ do? He was the embodiment of godliness. According to the word, he lived his life in perfect submission to the will of God. And he preached about himself as the way to enter this relationship. So it is the application of these truths continually to our own lives, which requires us to be growing in our knowledge of the truth. You notice there in, in, in the first couple of verses, he says, the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. You can't have one without the other. And so Christ-likeness, following this pattern, is our new purpose. Usually Paul would spend a bit longer in his letters in the beginning, in the first half of a letter sometimes, unfolding all the different gospel doctrines. This is what God has done. The indicative which leads to the imperative. This is what you must do in the other half of the letter. But what I find interesting, if you look at those four verses again, you don't see a full stop. It is, it is literally intertwined, the, the work that God has done, who we are, and the purposes of it is all intertwined there. And look how he, he links this so closely in the first few verses. Look at verse 1 and then verse 3. He says that his purpose is to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And then in verse 3 he says, which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. So again we see this God-given identity 
leading to this God-given purpose. And the ultimate goal is godliness. This is what we have lost in Adam. God made us in His likeness and His image as the pinnacle of creation. This is what we looked at in, in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. And we cannot put a system in place that achieves what was lost in sin. We can't do that on our own. There's no amount of events, dress codes. You can make a long list and put whatever you want on there. Nothing can accomplish the purpose for which God made humanity, which is to display His glory in the way we live. Godliness, as Titus is going to learn from Paul throughout this letter, how that should look in the life of the church. God, in His grace, has given this new identity which will lead as we grow in this grace, in this furthering of the faith. It will lead to godliness. But it's all of grace from beginning to end. There's, there's two ways that this furthering of the faith, this purpose, takes place. First of all, we are called to bear witness to the truth of God and His gospel with our lives. Look at chapter 2 with me in verse 10. Paul says there in chapter 2, verse 10, But showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn or make attractive or show the beauty of the doctrine of God our Savior. Or that, that body of truth that we find in God's Word alone about God, about Christ. That's how he defines the, the life of the Christian. It's as if we are to, to put on Christ like a beautiful garment for the world to see that we have been set apart for His glory so that it's attractive. We're to be adorned by this gospel. And as we do this, our proclamation, which is the second part, our proclamation of this gospel and our lives will be like two hands clapping and amen to our words. We have to help each other grow in this way so that our lives and our words are lining up with Scripture, with what God has called us to be and to do in His Word. And this is an important point to to pause on in His Word. Not just what we've done or good ideas we have, but what is most clearly revealed in His Word. That is the pattern of our lives that, that, that should shape us. Look at the, the following verse in chapter 2. Verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared. That's a way of describing what Jesus Christ does. His embodiment of the grace of God. Remember I said there's a unique grace and love which is in Christ Jesus alone that not everyone has but can only be found in Him. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. So Paul here is giving Titus a clear instruction in what might appear to be and actually is very basic. But you see these intertwining truths that God's grace is not just about overlooking. Sometimes we think about grace as if it's just overlooking our sin or our problems. But grace here is being defined as, first of all, in Christ, And second of all, in us, for the purpose of change and power, teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And what is the implication of that? It teaches us to say yes to godliness, to grow in our godliness by His grace. This is the twofold purpose of your life. And it's only because... Only because of God's word that I can actually say this. I can tell you this morning what the purpose of your life is. Are you ready? As a Christian, the purpose of your life is to proclaim the gospel. It is to proclaim the gospel. And it is to live in obedience to the word of God in such a way that his righteousness, which is within Christians, comes forth. So that the world sees a person who is unseen by our impure eyes. Namely Jesus Christ himself through our lives. Now, (laughs) I think there's a saying that says some things are very easy but they're not simple. You know, and some things are simple but they're not easy. But that is in a very simplistic way a description of what your purpose is is and is the very reason why we still exist in this world and Christ has not come and take us back because there are others who need to hear the gospel and there are many ways that all of us need to grow according to this gospel and it's only by God's grace through his word that we can do this which is the last brings us to the last point the eternal hope is with Christ Those of us who are in Christ have eternal hope, not just temporary hope. Sometimes it feels discouraging because we wake up and we move through the day and we know we don't live as we should. We know we don't live to the the standard of righteousness that we're called to. We sin against each other. We sin against people at work. We sin in our homes against family members. And we don't always feel the strength and the hope and the peace and other blessings which we do have in Christ. We don't always experience them as believers. We struggle and we waver in our faith. We have doubts. So what about when life's greatest challenges hit us? And that's how we feel at times. Almost to the point where we feel hopeless. What is the strength of our standing to be? How can we stand firm in the faith? We have to remember that first and foremost, our salvation is not ultimately about our feelings in this life. 
is not ultimately about us. It is about the glory of God, the highest peak of our salvation and the deepest root of our salvation. Is God doing a work in us, an eternal work, a supernatural work for his glory? Look at how Paul answers this question, how he connects our present day identity and our present day experience and purpose to the eternal working of God. Look at these verses once more. And he says this, In the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie, or some translations say cannot lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. How could a promise be made before time? A promise being made requires two persons. The idea of a promise can exist in one person's mind. But to have a promise made requires more than one person. He promised this eternal life which gives hope before time existed. And time Space and matter is what defines the realm of creation. So before anyone else was there, what this verse is telling us is that God the Father made an eternal promise to His only begotten Son that He was going to bring to light through the preaching of His Word throughout the ages and uniquely in this new covenant now. He was going to bring to light this eternal life in his people. And Paul says he's preaching for the furtherance of the faith of God's elect. That is a bedrock resting place for the soul of every believer. Now there's two truths that we have to think about when it comes to this promise. This promise has to do with a commitment of God, not just towards Christ, but towards those He promised Christ, which is a definition of the elect. This term elect and election is a theme which you see throughout the Bible. And because God knew full well what we were going to do, there's no way that we should ever think that He looked down the corridor of time and saw that some of the spiritually dead people, because of sin, were going to act better than the others, or be wiser and choose Him. No, this election has to do with an eternal love. God made a promise to the Son that He would give Him a bride. You remember that terminology? of Jesus and the church being his bride in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might present her without spot or blemish, that he might wash her with 
The water of the word, which is speaking about our sanctification, our, our being grown in godliness. But before time existed, the Father had chosen to place His love on the bride of Christ. And we don't know who else will become part of this bride. But we should know that we are not one of the members of God's universal church because of anything other than His grace. So when we go through these hard times of struggling, as a true believer, it is a healthy thing for us to look at the Word of God and see God saying to us, I have chosen to love you, knowing that you would experience these struggles, knowing that at certain points you would even fail me. I will not fail you. I have made an eternal promise. And the glory of the work of my Son is connected to this promise which you will see fully revealed in a new heaven and a new earth. So we see that in Christ we have a new identity, a new purpose, and an eternal hope which supersedes all of the challenges this life will bring us. And that gives us courage and strength and confidence to know that God is walking with us and we can be faithful to Him because He is faithful to His own word, to His own glory. Two, two hymns come to mind when I talk about these, these themes, for me at least. The first one is standing on the promises of God. And the second one is great is thy faithfulness. And one of the lines in the second hymn says, Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. So our, our hope is not just for this world. If we only have hope in this life as Christians, then we are pitiful. And that says very bad things about who Jesus is, what He taught, and what He accomplished. But our hope is eternal. It is found in Christ alone. We, we see these same connections between grace and evident growth in godliness, both in the Apostle John's writings and also in the, the words of Christ. John says this in 1 John chapter 3, showing the connection between hope and holiness. In the little letter of John, 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, we have these words. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. This is when faith becomes sight. Verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes, who has this hope, who hopes in this way, purifies himself as he is pure. Our hope in Christ causes us to try and live in a manner worthy of heaven. And Christ himself said that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so, all of this again, it begins and it ends with the grace of God. God indwelling, renewing, and in the end, perfecting His people.
people. So let us continue to examine God's word to understand who we are in Christ, what we're called to, to be and to do, and that this is the strength of our life, God himself, the person and the works of Christ in us, the hope of glory. God in Christ is reshaping a new humanity, and we have been brought into this reality, into his glorious image he's remaking us he is producing grace-based godliness in our lives which is all being done for his good for for his glory rather and our good so as we continue to work our way through titus may we continue to trust god and ask him to do the same work in our hearts to grow us in this way as we prepare now to take the Lord's Supper, I'll close in prayer, and then I'll come down and invite the elders to come and dispense the elements. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you 